Um, Last week, if you were here, we were talking about the question, what is love? We talked about how the, the DNA of relationships, and there's three strands in the DNA of relationships. One is, I was made for responsibility, or excuse me, <laughs> relationships, that too, response. I was made for relationships, I was made with the capacity to choose, and I was made to take responsibility for myself. Those three components are the basic bedrock of any relationship, of who we are. We are made for relationships. The second thing that we talked about is that honor is the substance of love. So if we're going to have healthy relationships, there has to be love exchange. Well, you can't have love without honor. Well, what is honor? Honor is to attach high value to the other person. We talked about how that, that decision, that decision to attach value is a very, you know, I'm the one that determines that value. If you remember, I had my dad's um, naval officer saber. And the internet says that that's worth 400 to $500. I offered it to, uh, to Dolly in first service, said, hey, what would you pay for it? He said, I really don't need it. I'm not going to pay anything. She offended me. And, but then to me, if I really was going to offer it for sale, I'd put a price tag so high that you wouldn't want to buy it. Because to me, it's worth so much more because of the memories and the association I have with my dad. So honor is a decision I make to attach high value to somebody else. So, cannot love someone I do not honor or place a high value upon, and I, I determine what value I place on others. They don't. We took those two foundational blocks and we decided to take a look and try and answer the question, what is love? And we found ourselves in 1 John chapter 4, and we spent a lot of, or most of our time there on verse 10. Because what does it say? This is love. So if we're asking the question, and here's the answer. So what does it say? Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what do we find in that? First, Love was initiated by God first. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to turn and reach out to him and say, I need you. We had our backs completely turned to him. It says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, while we were still wanting to go our own way, God placed a high value on us and said, they're still worth dying for. So, love was initiated by God first. Now, we say... Love was demonstrated by God meeting our key need for a healthy relationship with Him. Because we're made for relationship. So what was our key need for relationship? He is holy, we're not. He is righteous, we're not. That sin that we have, that we struggle with and we deal with, separates us from Him. So what did He do? He sent Jesus as the atoning sacrifice or the, the price that needed to be paid so that we could be forgiven, and have a relationship with God. So if those two components are in love, in verse 11 it says we're supposed to love like God loves. So then we have this definition that we pulled out of that verse. And it is love is intentionally placing high value on someone and seeking to meet their key needs for a healthy relationship. 
We talked about how we should be able to take this definition and apply it to the different passages of Scripture that talk about relationships. Ephesians talks about it, and you know, we talked about, you know, it could be children and parents or employers and employees, but we, we talked last week about husbands and wives, and that when the Bible uses the command, says, wives, submit to your husbands, well, it's because the husband needs to feel respected. That's a key need that that, that for there to be a healthy relationship. And, and then it says also, husbands, love your wives. Well, why is that? Because the wife needs to feel treasured. So it has less to do with what am I supposed to do. It's more about what do they need. That's, what, that's where love comes into play. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to continue on with that, with that theme because we all now understand what love means and what it's going to take, right? And it just happens, right? It's easy. It's easy to place high value on others and show them that we love them, right? No, because inevitably there's arguments, disagreements, opinions, friction between personalities and misunderstandings. All these things can cause us to be at odds with the other person, Instead of placing a high value on them, we find ourselves with a lower and lower opinion of, of how valuable they really are. So today we're going to be talking about conflict. And what is the primary driver of conflict? Don't we wind up in conflicts that end up harming those relationships and making it where it can't, it can't be like it always used to be? Does that not happen? Well... What do husbands and wives fight about? Well, most of the time, what's the number one topic? That's, we, that's what we always go to, is that money. I would also say sometimes it's how, the person's, how one or the other spends their time. Employers and employees, they don't pay me enough for this, to do this job. They give that promotion to a less qualified person. Children and parents, the children say, they don't, my parents just don't understand, they're being too restrictive. Between neighbors, why can't they keep their dog over in their yard? Tired of cleaning up his stuff. So conflicts, conflicts can erupt at any moment, at any point in time. Today, you're going to wonder why in the world I picked the title, Could I Have This Dance, to talk about conflict. But we're going to look today at what, you know, I talked about the DNA of relationships. Dr. Gary Smalley, he says, this is the dance that destroys all relationships. So, as we said in last week, the ideas and concepts of this part, like last week, out of this part is, was come, I'll take a moment. This part of the message came out of uh, concepts that I learned from the DNA of relationships. And these, this, ultimately, the information in this book came from a team of Christian psychologists that was really trying to, to help couples get back together. And in their, in their working with couples, they found out a key truth that we need to remember. And that is, what appears to be the problem often is not the problem. What do we say about husbands and wives? It's always money, right? Well, is that really the problem? 
Is money the problem? Well, let's take a look at a hypothetical conflict. Let's say it's not about money, it's more about time. And let's say a wife says to her husband, you're always spending way too much time at work. In the wife's mind, the problem here is a perceived lack of commitment from the husband to her family, to her and the family. But if we were to ask the simple question, and this, this came from these psychologists as they worked with people, why is that a problem for you? That's a key question to remember as you're dealing with conflict. Why is that a problem for you? Something we can ask ourselves. Why is that a problem for me? We may find that it actually goes deeper. The wife, so my husband's always at work. Well, why is that a problem for you? Well, he thinks work is more important than the kids in me. Well, why is that a problem for you? The wife might respond, um, it doesn't seem that he thinks I'm worth his time. Why is that a problem? I'm afraid that we're moving away from each other and that we will end up breaking apart. Now, does that seem like a logical progression, ladies? Could. We don't, you know, it's all hypothetical. But the ultimate point of this is, is that what we thought was the, it's the husband doing all, that he's doing all this, it boils down to what she's feeling that that is doing. So how about the husband's perspective? In his mind, he's doing the responsible thing in providing for his family. And in his mind, the problem is that his wife just doesn't understand. Her comments cause him to get frustrated and mad. So we could go to the husband and say, well, why is that a problem for you? Well, she's always questioning me, questioning me and doesn't understand why I'm doing this. Why is that a problem for you? It doesn't seem that she trusts my judgment on how I spend my time. Why is that a problem for you? I'm afraid that if I give in, she will end up running my life and I won't be able to make decisions on my own. Do you see how that might be a logical progression there? Notice how both scenarios end with, I'm afraid. And that is a key point for us to get in this. Our key needs, this might go ahead and pull that. Our key needs, whether it be respect or to be treasured, our key needs point to what we really want in a relationship. And we'll talk about here, that here in just a second. And then once we know what our wants are, well then that, that helps us understand what we fear will happen because we're afraid that our wants won't be met. That makes sense? Okay. Go back to our husband and wife example. If the key need for the wife or for the husband is to feel respected, then most men will want to be in control. They will want to have control. Why is that? Because we are struggling with or we're dealing with the question of do I have what it takes? Because we want that answer to be yes. We want to be in control. And as a result, if we, don't, if we feel that we don't have control, then we fear losing control. Now, it may not be necessarily control. It could be that a man is really looking for dignity and he's afraid of being humiliated. Maybe he's looking for success and it ultimately ends up in failure or doesn't want it to be, uh, end up in failure. Dr. Smalley says that ultimately 
if you take all the, all the wants that men have, it ultimately comes down to we're really looking for the ability to control our circumstances. Okay, what about ladies? Some women, or excuse me, women generally need to feel treasured because they wrestle with the question, am I worth being pursued? Because they want that answer to be yes, most women will want connection. Because they really want connection, they fear being disconnected. Or they will try to avoid being disconnected. Again, some may not... It may be more some women want to be misunderstood and they, don't, and they fear being misunderstood or they want attention and they fear being ignored. But ultimately, it all rolls up to that it comes back to that connection piece. So what happens? Something is said or done between two people that causes one side to hurt. With that hurt comes... Or that, that hurt comes from the realization that what we're really wanting in this relationship may not be met. This pushes a fear button in us, causing us, causing the sense of losing control or, or the sense of disconnection. And we react in an effort to get the other person to change so that our wants will be met. We tracking? That, is that, is that, is that kind of, you see how that's the anatomy of conflict? Well, so what happens in all that? Well, when we, when we have that fear button push, we will react. So let's take a look at maybe just some examples. You know, this isn't that, that none, of, none of us in this room ever do these things, right? Okay, because we, 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 we understand what love is, and so we never react in this way. But we've heard that some people will withdraw from a conflict, and maybe some people will escalate it. Or maybe some will, you know, make the other person feel invalid. Or they'll go passive-aggressive and they'll leave people wondering what they did wrong. Unfortunately, I'm pretty good at that one. So, we see the series of steps. Hurt, want, fear, react. And that, my friends, is what they call the steps of the fear dance. You may think, well, I'm not really sure about that. Well, let's go back to that husband spending a lot of time at work. His, he's been spending time there. His wife needs to feel treasured. She's wrestling with this, with this question. Am I, being, am I worth being pursued? Does he care about me? You know, she wants that connection with him. She perceives that the answer is No. Because he's pursuing work more than her. This hurts. This hurts. So, because she wants to be connected to her husband, and now she fears he's pulling away. So she reacts with the comment, you're always spending time, way too much time at work. Okay, you see the steps. So then the husband, he needs to feel respected. And he's wrestling with the question, do I have what it takes? He perceives that the answer is no because she is now accusing him of spending his time in the wrong place. This hurts him because he wants his wife to trust his judgment. And now he fears his wife will start telling him how to spend his time. So he reacts and says, I just can't do anything right in your eyes, can I? This taps her fear button again. 
because he's not understanding what she said or why she said it. And now she fears that connection is getting weaker and starts to cry. Well, this taps his fear button because it's obvious he can't control the circumstance now. And so he reacts the way a lot of men do when they can't fix a situation and withdraws. And when he withdraws, it just confirms more the fear of being disconnected in the wife, and the cycle goes on and on. Do you see how we have that? that and it's just a pattern. That, this is the nature of conflict. It doesn't matter if it's in the home. It could be at work. It could be at, um, at church. You know, people have gotten upset over colors of carpet and things like that. And it's caused a breakup to where they leave. Well, it's that fear cycle. It's that dance that's going on. So where did we learn these dance steps? What they found is that they really, they really don't know exactly where these things originate. But they do know that it happens when people, when people are really young. And whatever they've learned, they apply it as they go as they get older, and we, these dysfunctional habits that we've learned, we bring into our relationships, and that's what ends up wreaking havoc when conflict arises. Now, some may be saying, you know what, I don't know about all this fear stuff. I really don't have any fear. I would, uh, I would say to all the, all the dads... This is a question for all the dads that have teenage daughters in the room. And I can say this because I know my, my son has been seeing a young lady by the name of Destiny, and her dad and mom are here. And I would guess that when this young, fine-looking young man <laughs> shows up with a mullet and starts wanting to date their daughter... He may have been at first a little tempted to grab the shotgun. Just a little bit? Okay, Robert, you're, yeah, or a big bat or something. Like, why? I'm going to intimidate this guy and he's going to respect my daughter. Why does he feel that way? Because he fears being out of control. So we all have fears. We all have fears because we have wants. And when we see that those wants will not be met, our instinct is to act and try and do something to stop that from happening. How do we know this to be true? Let's take a look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Here they ask the question, what is it that causes the con- your conflicts and quarrels with each other? Doesn't the battle inside you Inside of you, or excuse me, doesn't the battle begin inside of you as you fight to have your own way and fulfill your own desires? You jealously want others to have, uh, want what others have, so you begin to see yourself as better than others. You scheme and envy and harm others to selfishly obtain what you crave. That's why you quarrel and fight. And all the time you don't obtain what you want because you, did, you won't ask God for it. So we've been talking about this fear dance and how it is the damager of all relationships. I think we can all understand, yes, that's true. Next week, we're going to talk more about that and maybe how can we learn some different dance moves 
that can break that cycle. But before we do that, before we finish up today, and this is what I'm going to wind down with in the rest of our time, is where in the world did this fear come into play to begin with? Why all of a sudden do we, you know, did God make us that way? Were we, were we wired to have these fears? Well, let's take a look at what the Bible says about the origination of these fears and how God has made a provision for us to be free from them. We good? Everybody take a moment and look at your neighbor and say, let's roll. Let's roll. All right. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please go there. Um, to set the stage, the Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It took him six days to put everything together. And on the sixth day he created Adam, man. He put Adam in the garden of Eden. And he said, I want you to t- tend for it and care for it. And he was going to be in relationship with God there in the garden. So we see, though, that there's a, there is one command that was essential for this relationship to be healthy. And we find it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. We're probably familiar with it, but let's go ahead and read it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are, to eat, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, when I read that just at face value, I think, why is that so important? What was so bad about this piece of fruit? Was it poisonous? Turn, come to find out? No. There's something else about this that, we're, that we tend to miss when we read over this. Now remember, I was made, one of the three strands of the DNA, is I was made with the capacity to choose. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So in God's commands, there's always a love component with it. It's not about do's and don'ts. There's a love component in his commands. Remember that Jesus said all of his commands could be summed up into two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the commands come down to love. So what is there about love that says don't eat from this tree? Well, it's kind of hard to see it. But somehow, obeying that command, Adam was showing his love for God. Let's take a look at how. Genesis Genesis chapter 3. Eve is now on the scene, so it's Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, and then it comes into the play where, beginning of the chapter, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, we understand that somehow, we, we, we know that this was the devil, the, the, Satan, that he was out to deceive. Why he spoke through a serpent, I have no clue. And just the fact that he spoke through a serpent is kind of weird. I mean, if a serpent came up and spoke to you, it'd be kind of creepy. So I don't know if this was normal for a serpent to speak or what, but it happened. So notice what he says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice how he exaggerates because he's leading Eve into a trap. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree 
that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Now, she didn't quote it exactly, but she still knows the consequence of the disobedience. So what do we learn from this? Here's where the deception comes in. Here's where the temptation shows up. You will not surely die or certainly die in verse 4. The serpent said, or the serpent said to the woman, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, notice this is what he uses to tempt her. So that kind of gives us some insight as to maybe what God had intended in that command. How do you mean that? Well, Satan's temptation could be paraphrased like this. You can't trust God because there are things that you're missing out on. He's holding out on you. There's things that you don't know that you could have if you just eat this fruit. You can have the ability to understand and know people like he does. You'll be able to figure things out on your own. You'll be able to make your own decisions and chart your own course. His statement implied that God was holding back valuable information causing them to wonder if God could be trusted to meet all their needs. Can you see that? So within that, what do we find in the command? This is what I think. This is what I think God was saying by giving them a choice. Eat or don't eat. Or don't eat or eat, in that case. Here's what I think God was saying. I made you for relationships with me. I made you with the capacity to choose, and I made you to take responsibility for yourself. I know that you love me when you put your total trust in me. You can count on me to provide all of your needs. In me, you will know how valuable you are. In me, you will be cared for, you will be honored, you will be accepted, you'll be successful, significant, approved, and so on. Trust me And rest in my love, for I will meet all of your needs and wants. However, you can choose to go on your own if you desire. You can eat this fruit, and yes, your eyes will be opened. And you will know good and evil, but with that comes consequence. Our relationship will be broken, and you will become aware of your own limitations. You will become aware of needs and wants that were intended to be satisfied by me. Ultimately, you won't be able to sustain your life, and the final consequence of our separation is that you will eventually die. So do you see the choice? If I obey, I'm showing I'm trusting in the Lord to provide all my needs. But if I take the fruit, I'm going to go it alone because I want to be like God and know those things too. problem is we're not God we're made in his image but we're not him so let's read on verse 6 when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who is with her and he ate it then the eyes of their the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig trees, fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what was the immediate consequence from when they ate? 
God said you're going to die. But the first thing that they notice is what? They're naked. Why is that? Because when that relationship with God got broken on, all of a sudden they realized their limitations and their vulnerabilities. They realized that they are not God. Now, we may think, okay, well, they're naked. They're afraid of being compared to somebody else. Well, there's nobody else there. It's just two. One woman, one man. The relationship with God was broken because they didn't want to rely on Him to satisfy their needs and wants. They thought they could meet them on their own. And when they made that choice and stepped out of God's care, they became aware of their own weakness and limitations. How do we know that? Let's Let's keep reading. Verse 8, then the, the man's, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We were made for relationships. God was sitting there walking around with them. That was his original intent, is that we would be in relationship with him. But he couldn't find him, and the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Notice this is the first time in the Bible that we see the word fear or afraid. So in life with God, when they were in relationship and it wasn't broken, fear did not exist. All of their needs were being met. Everything was being covered. They didn't have to worry about control because God had, it, had their backs and was, doing every, you know, was making sure everything went, for, went well for them. They didn't wonder if they were valued or treasured because God was, they were, he was meeting their needs the whole time. But they, they weren't satisfied with that and they decided to go it alone. The ultimate fear, even though they were fear, aware of their insecurities and vulnerabilities, remember that ultimately all of this comes down to death. That was the consequence. Because we are not God. They were not God. And, and we have limitations. What is it about death that causes us to fear so much? I don't know about you, I, you know, I, I wonder about it. As I'm getting older, I'm 51 years old now. I know I don't look like it. But I'm 51 years old now. And I realize that if I was to try and race my son, chances are I'm going to lose. Although I'd give it a good shot. Uh, but now anymore, I don't know that it's worth it because I'm going to hurt afterwards. <laughs> but as I see my life progressing... I know that the inevitable is coming. What is it about fear or about death that causes us to fear so much? Let's go back to our core questions or the core wants that we talked about. 
Husbands need to feel, men need to feel respected. So our want is control. The one thing about death is I have no control over it. What is the core want of a woman? To be connected. What happens at death? We become disconnected. So death taps both of our core fears hard. And it can become paralyzing to some. The good news is that God didn't want us to remain separated from him. And that he wants us to be free from the fear of death. That is the good news. Because if he covers our fear of death, how much more is he able to cover all of our other wants and needs? If he's got death handled, should we really be worrying about anything else? Will we, are we really lacking or wanting for anything else if, we, if death is covered? So where do we see in the Bible that God took action? Because we know, okay, we know from the word that we are his creation and that he has placed a high value on us. Yes, he is holy and righteous and we're not. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're still sinners, while we were still determined to go, go it alone, Christ died for us. Let's take a look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. We have heard John 3.16 quoted a lot, and I think it's important to read it along with verse 17. This is the New Living Translation. It says, For this is how God loved the world. Okay, well, how? He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Praise God. That is God's love. Now, what is that? how does that deal with fear? Well, let's take a look at another passage of Scripture, because this one really gets into how, why was it necessary for Jesus to come as a man? Okay, why did God do what he did? Well, we find this in Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. Because God's children are human beings. How many human beings do we have in the room here? Okay, because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had what? The power of death. So there was a strategic move that God did that said, I can meet their key needs because their sins are separating them from me. And because of those sins, death is reigning. And the devil's the one that holds the power. But if I send a human, Jesus, both God and man, if I send him and he lives a life that they can't live for themselves. And he fulfills all the requirements of God's law that that make us holy and righteous before him. If he completes that and he dies, that will break 
the power of death and will have no hold over them. Let's take a look at verse 15. Only in this way could he set free all, all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. That's a great promise. He has set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And if he's released, if we are no longer slaves to fear of dying, dying is about as bad as it gets. How much more can he handle for us? How many of our other fears can he quiet and still? This is going to come into play in our, in our talk next week. But today, let us get into 1 John chapter 4. This is actually our scripture for today, so all of that, what we covered, is the intro. I'm just getting started. No. We'll be wrapping it up with this. How is it that love can drive out fear? As we look at this, chapter 4, verse 16, before we read this, remember the original choice. Do I trust God with everything or do I go it alone? Trust or go it alone? God was saying, I made you for a relationship with the capacity to choose and to take responsibility. I know that you love me when you put your full and total trust in me. You can count on me to provide all of your needs. In me, you will know how valuable that you are to me. In me, you will be cared for, honored, accepted, successful, significant, approved, and so on. Trust me and rest in my love, for I will meet all of your needs and wants. That was the offer. So what do we see in verse 16? And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. The only promise that we have of escaping the fear of death is the fact that God has placed a high value on everyone here. Out of love. That is the only covering of protection that we have. But it's all we need. Don't need any more. So now we know and rely, rely, trust in the love that God has for us. We place our total trust in Him for everything. He goes on to say that God is love. Whoever lives in love or lives in God. Well, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So we could say it this way. If I live in love or make God my dwelling place by knowing and relying on his love for me, that he accepts me, then I will have relationship with him. I live in God and he lives in me. Verse 17 So how does this deal with fear? 
This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. What does the day of judgment represent? The day we face God. Here comes that fear again. What am I going to say? What's my defense going to be? For those who are in Christ, who are in Jesus, when God sees you, he sees his son. How is love made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment? In this world, we are like Jesus. It's not by our own works. It's by his work that he's done it. He becomes our right, the righteousness we need. He becomes the sacrifice that we couldn't make on our own. And when we place ourselves under him in this world, we are like him. We are children of God. That's how we can sing. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. That's putting your hope and your trust in the love of God that covers you. The blood of Jesus that purifies you. Verse 18. There is no fear in love. When you're covered by his love, there is no fear. Remember, fear didn't exist until that relationship was broken. Now that relationship has been restored by what Jesus did. And we have the opportunity to be with him. And fear can be done away with as a result. But perfect or perfected love drives out fear. What does that mean? Love that has been made complete by us, resting in the truth that God makes us his his children when we put our full trust in him. Perfected love will drive away all fear because fear has to do with punishment. But we don't have to fear that anymore. As we come to a close, I think about... I think about uh, I've had the opportunity to watch somebody pass away that was gripped by fear. I don't mean this to be I don't mean this to be um, sensational or anything, but it was just it was on my mind and it's like I, I guess I need to say this. I've, I've witnessed that. This person, I believe, okay, is my mom. I believe she was saved. I believe she had put her trust in Jesus, but I think in the latter part of her years, because of medicines and things like that, she was, she was, she couldn't maintain that relationship with God. I didn't see that for some reason. Didn't think about it at the time. But when it came time, for her to breathe her last, it was less than peaceful. Really rocked my world to see that. But then you hear the stories of people just going and they close their eyes, maybe have a smile on their face. Perfect peace. All of us are going to face that someday. All of us are going to have that, that, that sense of, I can't stop this. And I'm going to be separated from my loved ones. 
back to control and connection. But you know what? Because of what Jesus did, we, can, we have hope of eternal life. He saves us to where we're born again, makes us new inside. And so when we face death, we don't worry about being in control because we're trusting him. And we don't worry about losing connection because we know that if our loved ones are in Christ too, we're all going to see each other again. So that connection doesn't feel as, it's not final. I don't want to assume anybody, every, I, I don't want to assume anything about who is in this room today. I do not, I don't presume to make any assessment of where everybody in this room stands. I'm not going to do that. So because of that, I want to share with you, I want to share with you a, a slide that says, what must I do to be saved? We see this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It's a New Living Translation. This is what it says in New Living Translation. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with by believing in your heart that God made you right, that you were made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So if you're wondering, what must I do to, have, to not have this fear of death? It's right here. But what does it mean? Okay, it says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, here comes back to that trust or go my own way. You have to come to the point where you recognize that Jesus has got it figured out, and I don't. You have to come to the point where you say, you know what, I've been trying to meet all my needs, trying to find satisfaction in other people or other things, and all I end up doing is just feeling miserable. And, I, and yeah, it may satisfy for a little bit, but then it, it just winds up being empty again. You say, this isn't working. And you repent, which means turn away from that way. And you say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust you that you say you're going to meet all my needs. I trust you that you're going to calm my fears and you're going to give me the confidence that I, I will be able to stand before you one day and not be ashamed and not be afraid. That's what it means to make Jesus Lord. You have to give up your way and do your best to pursue his. Well, we won't do it perfectly, but that's what it takes. We've got to recognize his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are better than our ways. And then, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then our faith means nothing. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, as the first man to ever do that and, and live eternally, you and I have the hope of living again too. That, that event is what sealed the deal that we would have eternal life. So if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, 
then you have hope of eternal life too. So, I declare, openly declare that Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. The word says, at that point, you are saved. And I believe that the Spirit of God will come in and confirm that in your heart. And you will have a new heart. Where we used to have a heart of stone, now it will be a heart of flesh. And when we talk about attaching high value to other people, we find that it's not possible in our own strength, but maybe he has something figured out and can and help us do that. He has presented us with a choice to put our hope and trust fully in him, come under the covering of what Jesus did, allow the love of God to come over and cover you and let him just assure you that you're okay. Or we can continue to choose to go it alone. Wherever you're at, I know that I could always learn and know and experience the love of God more. So I don't know where you're at. I would encourage you that if, if, if you want to pursue a relationship with God through Christ, this is the day.